You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you here. Um, I'm going to speak this morning on a life of presence or cultivating the presence of God. And um, since my episode this summer, I've been evaluating what's important to me on a number of levels. And one of those levels is what I think is important when I'm preaching. So I've really given real consideration this morning to um, the reality of experiencing a life of, with, the, with the presence of Jesus, the, that there's a literal presence of Jesus, presence of God, that has a transforming uh, power or influence. And um, I've, I've realized that desire to know the Lord, to know the presence of the Lord has really been a primary motivating factor in my faith since I was in my 20s. And I grew up in a, a church group that didn't really emphasize um, that aspect of our faith. When I say that aspect, I mean that there is um, the literal presence of the Lord that we can experience. It's, um, it's, it's not just about knowing the Bible and um, but we can know Jesus. We can know God. We can know him. And, um, but when I realized that early on, like my mid-20s, early 20s actually, I was intrigued to realize that we could experience the literal presence of God in an ongoing and growing way that would make a difference to us, that would affect our lives. And... Um, being a Christian is more than having a relationship with a book. It really is. Thank God for the book. Don't misunderstand me. Um, but when we met Jesus, we didn't just get a manual. We didn't just get a manual. We got Emmanuel. God with us. Yeah. And thank God we have both because without the manual... We would misunderstand Emmanuel on a pretty pretty consistent basis. People talk about all the uh, problems with the denominations because of the Bible. <laughs> what kind of mess would this be without it, though? Uh, <laughs> anyway, moving right along. Yeah, we didn't just get a manual. We received a relationship with Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. John Mark wrote, I think it was John Mark who wrote a a phrase in a song about he didn't just want a God who lived in a book, but we get the God who lives in us. In him we live and breathe and have our being. Um, Actually, Paul stole that from some of the poets of Greece, but nevertheless, it's in the scripture, so there it is. But not just Emmanuel, but Emmanuel, the presence of Jesus is life-changing. <clears throat> but it's easy, easy, to, um, easy to forget that, yes? Yes? Easy to walk right by that, yes? 
Well, let me read a number of verses here. One of them is Psalm 42, 5. Psalm 42, 5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? This is a very intriguing psalm. David is asking his soul a question. Why are you cast down and why are you disquieted within me? Then he says this, hope in God. Let's say that together. Hope in God. Those three little words save your life. What should I do? Hope in God. Hope in God for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And I wanted us just to look at that phrase for the help of his countenance. Another way you can translate that is whose presence is salvation. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance or whose presence is salvation. And there's a lot in that verse. First of all, you can talk yourself out of a depression, number one. You paying attention? Is that, I don't know, did we get that verse up, Christopher? Is that one I gave you? I'm sorry, it should have my fault. But here David is asking, you know, David went through so many things and there's so much we can learn from him. Here he talks himself out of a depression. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Then he gives a solution. Hope in God and then he gives you a method. For I shall yet praise him for his presence is salvation. And um, I heard somebody preach on Zacchaeus recently, and I thought I was just going to steal some of his message. It was so good. And um, here again, I didn't put these verses up because I changed my mind a little bit about this this morning because the Lord, I felt like, began to speak to me. But in, in Luke 19, if you want to turn to Luke 19 on in some way, shape, or form, I would really be happy if we went back to taking Bibles to church personally, <clears throat> as opposed to telephones. And but that sort of dates me there, doesn't it? Anyway, it says in uh, Luke chapter nineteen, this is when Jesus came to Zacchaeus's house. Now, the way my brain's working this morning, I am going to call Zacchaeus Nicodemus at least once. So give me a heads up if I do. But a little warning. So the Bible tells us that Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Verse 2, now behold, there was a man there named Nicodemus. (laughs) There was a man there named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was very rich. Well, if you know anything about Jewish tax collectors. They were collecting taxes for the Romans. Most of them um, were cheating people out of their money. And a tax collector was hated. A Jewish tax collector was hated. And the chief tax collector could possibly have been the most hated man in the nation. And so Zacchaeus appears here in Luke 19. Verse 3 says, he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because he was of short stature. 
So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. There's a lot you can probably glean from these verses. First of all, Zacchaeus um, had issues because he was hated. I think he probably had issues because he was so short he had to climb a tree to see who Jesus was. But Jesus came and he wanted to see him. So he runs up, climbs up a tree. And when Jesus came um, to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus made haste and came down and received Jesus joyfully. That's great. Received Jesus how? Joyfully. But when the people saw it, they all murmured and complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now, that's remarkable. Zacchaeus suddenly repents on the spot. I I looked this up this morning that um, the Jewish law said if you stole something, you needed to give four of them back. If you stole an ox, you'd had to take four back. And so suddenly, perhaps even unexpectedly, Zacchaeus changes in this remarkable way. He, He suddenly says... Think about it. Think about how much money you either had or wish you had and that you were suddenly going to give half of it away and then anybody you lied or cheated, you're going to give them back four times what you took. That's remarkable. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. Say that with me. Today, salvation has come to this house. And then Jesus said, because he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, we don't have any record of anything that Jesus said to Zacchaeus other than, come down, I must stay at your house today. How did Zacchaeus's character and nature change? What was it? The only element we see in this verse is the presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus caused the wealthiest tax collector in Israel to suddenly repent and commit himself to something that's way more remarkable a repentance than anything I've ever known as a believer from anyone that ever got saved and suddenly decided what they were going to do because they met the Lord. Well, that's a picture of how the presence of God alone can change a person's life. The presence of Jesus. Salvation had come to Zacchaeus's house. Well, the only person extra that went to Zacchaeus's that house was this man named who? Jesus, it's the presence of God, the unbridled, unadulterated, 100% presence of God in Christ Jesus. I think that's wonderful. 
Well, I want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> Moses. One of the significant episodes in life of Moses was, uh, it's a long story, I'm, I don't need to get into all of it, but the Lord had entrusted Moses with two million rebellious Jews to take them from the wilderness into the promised land. And at one significant place in Moses' life, he asked the Lord for his presence to go with him to enable him to complete this assignment. So we find this in Exodus 33, verse 14 through 16. And God, he said, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he, Moses, said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Now, that's pretty serious business. Moses didn't want to go anywhere if God's presence wouldn't go with him. Verse 16, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? Think about that. How is it, will it be known by those around us that we have the grace of God in our lives at work unless in our lives is the kind of presence that comes with that grace that affects other people? That's quite a challenge. That's what, that's what Moses said. How will it, how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? And then it says this, so we shall be separate. Actually, that word means distinguished. So we shall be distinguished, your people and I, from all the people of God and every other group. And so the distinguishing characteristic of a believer, you and I, should be that we have the tangible presence of of the Lord in our lives. It's something we can feel, but it should be something other people can sense about us. Once again, our God is not a God who lives in a book, but the God who lives in us. God didn't give us a manual. He gave us Emmanuel. God where? With us. Jesus even said it more succinctly. He said, well, the kingdom of God is at hand. How many of you have hands? Well, that's how close the kingdom of God is, according to Jesus, is at hand. But actually, he said it's more than that. It's within us. And too often, we're not aware of who it is we have or who has us. I want to read a a couple of more psalm passages, 1611. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, I think we should not settle for our relationship with God until we know those two benefits to walking with him. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Now, that's a strange thing to say, but uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Fullness of joy. For your, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21, 6. Now, the interesting thing is when I'm reading these psalms, I'm actually, what are psalms? Songs. 
the church in uh, or the, the synagogues would sing these. <clears throat> for you have made him most blessed forever, Psalm 21.6. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. I like that idea of exceeding gladness. How about you? <clears throat> That's another distinguishing feature of having the presence of the Lord. Psalm um, 31, 19 and 20. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, stored. What you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. had a cough for six weeks and a sinus infection, but I'm almost over it. Everybody happy about that? Yeah, good. I am too. You know, it's exhausting to cough. It's like working out with no benefits. How great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. (coughs) You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. I'm sorry. (coughs) Gosh, my goodness. Let me make a couple of comments here. Goodness is stored up for those who fear the Lord. And God has offered us the mystical aspect of his presence, which is that his presence can actually insulate us from adverse relationships, other people's comments and statements which affect us. That's what it says right there. You shall hide them in the secret place. What secret place? Well, it's so secret you can be in it and nobody even knows it. It's the secret place of the relationship you have with God, his presence. It it will hide you from the plots of men. It will keep you secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. How many of us would like to avoid the strife of tongues? And that's not speaking in tongues. That's people's tongues wagging. Psalm 91, Moses calls it the secret place of the Most High. They who dwell in the secret place of the Most High shall do what? Abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And then it goes on to say, whose evil, who's evil uh, that can withstand any evil power. It's remarkable. Psalm 91 is one of the most remarkable promises in the Bible. But experiencing the presence of the Lord is something we have to cultivate. How many of you know it's just, now, God's always with us. Everybody on board with that. But wouldn't it be nice to always know and feel and sense that he's with us? Well, that is, <clears throat> that is something we have to cultivate, something we have to pay attention to. The ongoing experience of the presence of the Lord is something you cultivate. Now, there are keys to it, and I think two of the keys are praise and thanksgiving. 
They are essential to continually experience and enjoy God's presence and to abide in it. I know another thing is to cultivate the presence of God, you must realize you're loved. Turn to somebody you like and say, God loves you. Now, if there's nobody around you you like, get out of your seat. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, listen, two things this morning, hope in God. Let's say that together. Hope in God. What's the answer to my problem? This old preacher, radio preacher, Shambach, used to say, you don't have any problems. All you need is faith in God. Isn't it nice to hear something simple every once in a while? Faith in God can get you through what you're in. Hope in God can get you over the top. It can separate you from losing out. That's wonderful. My goodness, I feel like a radio preacher. I read a couple of things I liked from Richard Rohr, and one thing he wrote was, Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. Jesus came to change the the mind of humanity about God. Most of, were, most of us were taught that God would love us if and when we changed. But the reality is, in fact, God loves you so that you can change. It's the inherent experience of love that becomes the engine of change, he said. Most religious people have put the cart before the horse by imagining that we can earn God's love by some kind of moral behavior. It's not going to work. But according to the saints and the mystics and the Bible and Jesus, God's love must be experienced first. Then our moral behavior becomes an outflowing of our contact with the infinite source towards all people and other things. God is love. When we meet the Lord the right way, the episode, the event, the reality of knowing God's love has the capacity to change us. I'm going to run down through some of these. Ephesians 3.19 says in the Weiss translation. Anybody ever read the Weiss, W-U-E-S-T translation? It's, it's really good. Ephesians 3.19, and to know experientially the love of Christ, which passes experiential knowledge in order that you may be filled up to the measure of the fullness of of God. Well, there's something about being thankful that's essential to abiding in God's presence. I, for one, am not naturally uh, thankful. Any of my relatives in here? <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm, I'm quite comfortable just to complain uh, at any, any time. Any moment, you could, you could easily squeeze a complaint out of me if you worked at it hard enough. But there's something about being thankful that is so important in the life of the believer. Um, and also, one that praises God. I remember years ago, we used to praise God for no reason whatsoever. Actually, the phrase, praise the Lord, was something we would say all the time. We really would. Psalm 100, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. When's the last time you shouted joyfully, anybody? Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence 
with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It's he who made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Verse four, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Well, why should we do that? For the Lord is good. Verse five, his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. And so the language there is emphasized over and over, which is come before his presence with singing, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise, be thankful to him and bless or praise his name. Now, like I said, it's easy for me to, to complain. And being thankful is something I have to um, be deliberate about. And um, this has gone on a long time. <laughs> Actually, I've had an experience in 2005, July of 2005, I want to tell you about. That was 18 years ago. 18 years ago, I was working at this place where you felt like you were on 24-7. You know what that means. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you were liable to get pulled into something or have to do something or be responsible for something. And I got two weeks vacation a year, and so I was really excited about those two straight weeks of vacation. How many of you would be excited about two straight weeks of vacation? Well, so I went on vacation with my family, we rented this place at the beach. Number one, the air conditioning didn't work. But that wasn't the worst part of it. I got an earache. How do you get an earache when you're not a kid? I don't even know how you do that. But I got an earache, so I'm sweating on my vacation in a place I'm paying extra for at the beach and I am miserable. Can you hear me? Here's what that earache did. Every time my heart beat, my ear pounded in concert with it. Now, how many times a minute does your heart beat? Who can tell me? Doctor, I bet. How many times a minute? 57? 22, 18, I don't know, but I knew every time mine did, I'll tell you that. And so in the middle of the night, I, w I complained to the Lord, why would you let me get an earache of all times on my vacation? Spiritual giant that I was. And I was... I don't know if I was, I was half asleep or half awake. I was a half something. But suddenly, I was with the Lord. Jesus looked at me and said, um, I want you to go somewhere with me. And I, I said, yeah, okay. And so suddenly, I was in Jerusalem, and I was standing before the wailing wall. Somebody say wailing wall wailing wall, except the problem with the wailing wall was it looked like 12 thrones up on the top of what looked like 
the Wailing Wall, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus and I were standing there. He wasn't talking. He, we were just looking, and I was looking at each one of the thrones. So that would have been, I'm not going to name them all, Ephraim and Manasseh. And, but in every single throne but Judah's, someone was sitting there enthroned. And so the only empty throne was Judah's. So Jesus said, I want you to go somewhere. We went somewhere. It looked like the wailing wall. And he, he left me standing there looking at Judah's empty throne. I turned around. Jesus gone. He didn't say goodbye. And so I'm thinking there must be a message here somewhere. Well, Judah's name, how many of you know what Judah's name means? It, it means praise. And so the only unoccupied throne was the throne of praise. And the Lord was showing me, if you will learn how to occupy the throne of praise, <laughs> you will turn your wailing wall into something completely different. Because thrones speak of authority or power, seats of authority. And the Lord was telling me it was time for me to stop complaining and sit down in the throne of praise and begin to exercise my authority over my attitude and my disposition. It was time to praise the Lord. It was time to regain my authority. It was time to turn my complaint into appreciation and my wailing wall into a throne of praise. Now, that's hard to do. But hard to do is part of what it is to grow up in God and be the kind of person you were predetermined to become. Thanksgiving and praise are significant. They're important. A friend of mine once told me that Thanksgiving is the way to express your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. Thanksgiving is the way to express your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. He said this, Thanksgiving is your passport that opens doors that nothing else can open. It enables you to gain access into heaven's embassy when you're under hostile fire or in the midst of warfare. Well, why do we praise God? Isn't that a good question this morning? Why do we praise God? Well, we praise God because it will change our focus, because we're self-centered. A pastor I had for years, Harry Bazell, used to say, self-centeredness is the landing pad for oppression. Self-focus. If all you do is think about who you are, what you are, and why you are, you are in trouble already. Actually, the def Gordon Peterson's definition of depression is self-focus. 
Go care about somebody else. Forget about yourself. What? Why don't you just forget about yourself? Now, you know, look at the context of, the, look at the person who's telling you this, me, when I have trouble doing what I'm telling you, but that doesn't mean what I'm telling you is not right. <laughs> do what I say, don't do what I do. And I'm trying to do what I say. But when we praise God, I mean, really do it. Not just say it, but in your heart, make a point to do it. It will change your focus. Now, the first time praise is mentioned, it's in Genesis 29, 31 through 35. And let me, uh, this is about the birth of Judah. And this is such a significant story. I would, I would really hope that, um, You'd go home and read this and meditate it on this week because it's got such a powerful message in it. This was about um, Jacob. How many of you know Jacob had two wives? I, I don't recommend that. But um, anyway, Jacob had two wives. Who were they? How many of you know who they were? Yeah, Rachel and Leah. And he loved Rachel, didn't like Leah much. That was a terrible situation for Leah, wasn't it? But we find in verse 30 that he loved Rachel more than Leah. In verse 31, it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction, now therefore my husband will love me. Now we're going to look at these names in a minute. I want to read the rest of the passage. Verse 33, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, heard that I'm unloved, he has therefore given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me or love me because I've born him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Well, what Leah realized that after bearing three sons, Jacob didn't love her any more than he had. But do you notice she's conceiving his children? Now, that's pretty difficult, wouldn't you think? If you think about all the complications and the implications. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Well, let me repeat. Jacob was married to both Rachel and Leah, but loved Rachel, Rachel the most. Leah thought if she gave him children... When Rachel was barren, Jacob would love her more than he loved Rachel. And so you have a picture here of Leah trying to win love from her husband and nothing she does works. And there's a picture. There's a picture of the way we can, we can be like Leah out in the world. We can be doing everything we know to please people, to be accepted, to 
get from people whatever that missing thing is inside of us that we may be experiencing. So I want to read one of the commentators who really puts this well. Leah had four sons in rapid succession and gave them names, which indicated her state of mind. Number one, Reuben means see a son because she regarded his birth as a pledge that Jehovah had graciously looked upon her misery. For now, her husband would love her. See, that's what she was saying to her husband. Look, look what I, I, I gave you. I gave you a son. Won't you love me? Look, Jacob, a son. Now will you love me is what she was saying. Her second son, Simeon, means hearing, for God had heard. Jehovah had heard. God had observed that Leah was hated, or God had heard that she was loved less than Rachel. So she named her second child hearing. Her third son, Levi, means attachment. For she hoped that this time, at least after she had borne three sons, her husband would become attached to her. He would show her affection. He would provide for her that thing that she felt like was missing in her soul or missing in her heart. But something happened after that. She had child number four. And what did she name him we just read? Judah. She named Judah praise. And here's what she said after that fourth child. Now I'll praise the Lord. In other words, after all of this, she finally realized I'm going to turn my heart toward God. I'm going to look to God for what I need instead of people, places, or things. I'm going to look to God. I'm going to name my child what I'm committing my life to doing, praising God. Now, here's the interesting thing. Genesis 49 tells us about Jacob when he died. When Jacob died, he said, um, bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that's in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for our burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah. So this is what Jacob's saying. I want to be buried where they buried Abraham and Sarah. Do you know, I don't know if, if how normal this is, but my mother's people come from a little place called Due West. And Due West has an ARP church, and my folks all came from the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. And all of my mama's people, including my mom and my dad, are buried down there. They're all buried together. And there's something about wanting to be buried with your people. There really is something to that. <clears throat> Hang on one second. So Jacob is telling, giving burial instructions. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. And 
And then he talked to his sons for a little bit. And then the Bible says he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Where did Jacob want to be buried? Who did he want to be buried with? Leah. Something remarkable had happened in Leah's life as she went from looking for people, looking for places, looking for things to make her feel whole or complete or happy or satisfied. When she eventually looked to God for that, to the presence of God, it caused her to name her child Judah, which she devoted the rest of her days to, was connecting with the Lord, honoring the Lord, praising the Lord. And by the time her husband died, that's who he wanted to be with. The, the thing Leah wanted to change didn't change until Leah changed. Until her focus changed, the things around her didn't make a movement. When Leah looked to the Lord and began to praise him, when she began to live a life of praise to the Lord, live as one who set her love on him, the Lord set the love of Jacob upon her. That is so powerful. That's so important. I know so many people that don't seek first the kingdom of God. They're out looking to add all the things to themselves. And the trouble is so many times you get what you're after and you're no better off internally or inwardly than before you started. We need to know, seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Live right too, by the way. And all these things will be added unto you. All the things. I know people, you know, people run around, oh, he ain't gonna meddle, but... The first commitment you should have in your life, generally speaking, should be your spiritual commitment. And then after that, your natural accommodations and needs. Now, people don't talk about that anymore. Jesus was real clear about it. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the rest of your life will find a way to fall into place. But I know people are out looking for wives, looking for money, looking for houses, looking for whatever, and thinking, and once I get that, I'll find a good church. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. The most potent thing you can do is know God, know what he wants for your life, and then let everything else line up. Yeah. Yeah. What does God want for your life? I, I remember when I started going out with Donna. I wanted to get married, and I liked her a lot. But I, I had issues. And I kept breaking up with her. And a friend of mine said, um, delight yourself in the Lord. Who knows how the rest of that goes? And he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, I didn't. I delighted myself in Donna. 
and we couldn't make it work out. It's funny how the Bible will prove itself to us whether we like it or not. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's the order. That's a divine order. That's something God says is key. Well, we kept breaking up. I kept breaking up with her. She finally said, you break up with me one more time, I'm never basically going to have any more to do with you. So I broke up with her again. It was ugly. And it was me. It wasn't her. <laughs> Anybody that doesn't like Donna, you got issues, baby. I mean, if you can't like my wife, <laughs> oh my goodness. Any trouble we ever had in my marriage was my fault. Period, exclamation point. Not hers. I could adjust that a little bit, but not much. And so we stayed broken up for, in the same church, I don't know, nine or ten months, a good, good while. And then suddenly I must have delighted myself in the Lord and... Uh, it's it's so ridiculous. Nobody should ever get married the way I did it. I went to her and I said, hey, listen, I got an idea here that's really a good one. <laughs> she said, what's that? Let's go out and get married. Now, she spent all those months delighting herself in the Lord because she was heartbroken. I broke her heart. But she wasn't focused on the Lord any more than I was when it came to us being together. And so over those months, the Lord rearranged her heart, rearranged mine, and the strangest thing happened. Against common sense, when I said that to her, she said, okay. Why would she do that? Because she had this instinct. If she says no, she's gonna go back into all that confusion the Lord just brought her out of to get me to this place. Now, I can't make that make any more sense than I'm trying to make it make. But that's exactly what happened. When we delighted ourselves in the Lord, he gave us the desires of our heart, which were each other. We've had just such a wonderful marriage. I mean, I got all these kids and grandkids, and I saw one of my grandkids run around this morning, had his name tag stuck to his forehead. And I thought, isn't that marvelous? <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? What can come of my wife and I, four kids, five grandkids, and um, but we had some learning to do. You know, experience is not the best teacher. My experience for you ought to be the best teacher. Somebody else's experience needs to be your best teacher. You don't need to go through everything it takes to go through to become all that God wants you to be. We need to pay attention. We need to pay attention. We really do. Because the Lord can keep us out of so much trouble if we just pay attention to what he's saying to us. So, Okay, I think that's enough for today. God bless everybody. 
You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.